Harlots of History contains explicit language, overt sexual themes, and discussion of sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harlots of History, a show by women for everyone, except children and pets, including our own. This show is created by our love of the shadier, inventive, and bold women, men, and non-binary humans that you cannot find in the history books. We will be exploring and educating ourselves, and hopefully our listeners, on infamous mistresses, lovers, sex workers, courtesans, madams, vamps, sirens, and of course, harlots. We will delve into their pasts, sordid or honorable, discussing the era that they happen to live in and the problems of the times. Be ready for some controversial figures. You may be surprised at how many harlots in history you end up loving or at least begrudgingly respect. So sit back, grab a fizzy drink, some salty snacks, and have some fun listening to Harlots of History, taking back the word harlot one episode at a time. Welcome to Harlots of History. This is our little baby that we made together. (laughs) We did. (laughs) We made it together after a night of wine and cheese. (laughs) That's how most babies are made. (laughs) I think that's how all your babies were made. (laughs) That's how all my cats were adopted. (laughs) Right. Scanning through the adoptive list on the website. I Uh, am so mad that Matt didn't get me a cat for my birthday. I tried all day yesterday to get Three cats is not too many. It is when you live in a condo and you have a dog. You need, you need like, you need like a full on, you need a house. Once I can get a Highland cow, I can get another cat. There you go. Boom. (laughs) Oh, wait, who are we? (laughs) Oh, my name is Kara Mia. I will say I am a hard at work mom who just happens to be based at home. Yes. Well, now we have this podcast that's not earning us any money yet, but but we are putting in like 40-hour weeks to make Honestly, it happen. Honestly, it's our so. passion project, and every episode takes 20, if not more, hours of work. Yeah. Once my, like, once it really, it truly does. Me, get ready for like... <laughs> get ready for interesting topics. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and I'm Emily, <laughs> um, and I am an out-of-work bartender. So I stay home and bartend for myself. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a dream job. I know it is. I don't pay myself very well, but it's okay. <laughs> I need a new boss. My boss oh. is such a bitch. <laughs> I love it so much. And my coworkers oh. are furry. Furry and they poop in the house. They do poop in the house. <laughs> so do mine. Oh. You're it's yet another way we relate to each other. <laughs> Actually, real quick, I know that you have like a monster beast topic, but I don't think we've ever mentioned how similar our like pets and children are. Right. That's you right. Have, I have my my daughter who I got when I was 21 or 22. And 21. I have, yep. And I have my daughter Zelda who I had when I was 22. Her father and I are on great terms, but we separated. Yeah. So they were like our yeah. precursor children. Yes, I got it when I was 21, and that's Sammy. And then I didn't have my next. And then the next one I had was a son. It was like four years later or five years later. And Alfred was born four years later mm-hmm. with so your my son husband. Was born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Polar is my third child. She's a girl. She We got her. We had her a year. At, had her. We adopted her a year after we got Salem. Yeah, and I had, I had Alfred. Uh, I had Edie. Edith, we call her Edie, a year after I had Alfred. And we laugh really hard, Emily and I, constantly because 
our animals mimic their corresponding children like a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Sammy almost bit Zelda when she like first came home. Like, she came home too. When when we first went to Emily's apartment, when Zelda was, was like home. three days old, they like knew each other's like importance. I feel like my apartment was like more home. Oh, I because love you guys were there so much. I know. We well, you live, live there. We also live next. We chose to live next door to each other. I know, and now we live and like seven states away, and we do not understand why we ever left that place. And it was like what four years. Ago? I don't. I should never have left. I think though, if we hadn't have left and moved on, like I would still be there with Matt and three animals, and you would still be there. And like I was in a studio, you were in a one bedroom. Like we would all be living. <laughs> living. <laughs> Our stuff would, would be, be floating out in the hall. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be amazing. We would just have like migrated to the roof. But you got uh, Karamia's husband proposed to her on the roof of that building. And Emily helped plan it. And it was like the best thing in the world. Only did I help plan it. I came up with the idea for it. Oh, it was like, it's honestly was more romantic than my wedding. And I tell my husband that all the time. (laughs) I know. And I came up with everything. I told him that he had to go buy those clear umbrellas. I love that. That was like such a favorite detail of mine. I sent him the morning that it happened. I was like, you have to go buy these clear umbrellas. And the space that was in the background, it was like this really like industrial building. It wasn't like a new modern rooftop. When I, we we lived in an apartment that had an elevator that you had to like close the gate. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was like those. I I feel like I've seen an episode of Angel where they like had to close, like a demon was attacking them, and they had to like close the gate. I felt like that every time. <laughs> every time we went, had to go down to the basement to do our laundry. <laughs> that basement was so scary. Oh. oh my gosh! All right, we missed that apartment. I, I we do. Saeed was the best he landlord was amazing. in the world. Oh, we love him. He was him. amazing. He was so sweet. So kind and caring. Yep. I know. He put up with my like 21-year-old antics where I like constantly lost my keys and was like knocking on his door at 1 a.m. And then I wrote him a letter and it was like, I'm so sorry. I'll do better. And he was like, I felt like a disappointed dad. Oh, <laughs> I you're know. like, I don't want to disappoint you again. I will never but then you did. <laughs> I did. I got better, though. But then when I lived there, you could just text me, which you did. Yeah, and then and I could just text you. Yeah. And then I lost your keys. Oh, yeah. I like, remember texting you and you were at work when I was babysitting Zelda. I was like, oh, don't be mad. But I just locked your apartment door. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, Zelda's with me. She's so- fine. Like, the baby is in my arms. <laughs> oh my gosh so okay me. i remember one time wait real quick one time i yeah. locked myself out with the whole pizza <laughs> the whole at least you had the whole pizza i think i had my whole pizza say so i was like waiting for you to come home to let me in and say so he came out he's like are you okay <laughs> <laughs> it was a large pizza too it was the night i got back from new york city and i was so sweaty and i'd ordered a pizza and i went to go get it and i locked my door on accident and I was sitting there crying, eating oh. a like seventy-five inch pizza. All right. Oh, that's so. I remember that. Oh. All right. This is just Good making time. me nostalgic too I much. Mean, but we have this podcast. It's okay. And every time I'm nostalgic, I start leaking from my breasts because <laughs> <laughs> it just like it releases so much oxytocin for me. Like, oh, just go put some band-aids. Nah, I'm good. <laughs> okay. All right. We have a monster topic. Let's go. Okay. So uh, before we begin. I really want to put a disclaimer that I am not a historian. I'm an amateur historian. I ventured out on this topic to educate myself, and I am assuming a lot of other probably primarily white women who are like me. And so I just want to really 
say that before we start talking about this topic. And pretty much I am trying to give the most concise brief history of geishas that I possibly can. And also about, I'm going to talk about Mineko Iwasaki, who became really famous uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s because of Memoirs of a Geisha. And this would honestly be like a whole podcast Oh, it's like, a series it, on its own. Oh my gosh. So, and like, yeah, I was actually listening to a really, um, I discovered a really amazing podcast through this and it's uh, pretty much, it's just called the history of Japan. And mm-hmm. he didn't get to histories, uh, like even the synopsis of a history of a geisha until episode 303. Oh my gosh. So like Japan has such an amazing history that I have been trying to get my hands on as much as I can throughout the years. My husband and I can't wait to visit, especially once COVID's over, blah, blah, blah. We all go together because we were supposed to go for my 30th birthday and then we realized that we had no money. So (laughs) I want to go to Kyoto so bad. I want to go to Osaka really, really bad. Oh, they're like 40 kilometers away. So we could start in Osaka (laughs) by the ocean and then travel up to Kyoto in the mountains. Yeah. And then Matt can show us all around Tokyo because he lived there for four years. So cool. So cool. So We'll start off. Uh, if you are anything like me, you got your hands on a copy of Memoirs of a Geisha. And like what? That I was like probably like, I want to say like sixth, seventh grade. Yeah, maybe a little younger for me. <laughs> you say six. I was like, whoa. No, <laughs> six or seven. So like 11, 10, 11. Um, yeah. And it pretty much formed your entire conceptions. You pretty much formed your entire conception of geishas on that book. Right. And there was a movie too, right? Uh-huh. And we'll talk about that. Yeah. Written by a white man from Kentucky. And you foolishly lived your life until you asked the question, are geisha sex workers? I asked myself that question a couple of weeks ago. And no, they are not. That is why this episode is titled, Not a Harlot. Brief yeah. history of the geisha, Mineko Iwasaki, and Arthur Golden. And also, before I continue, I'm doing my best to pronounce these beautiful Japanese words. I have done my best to research their pronunciation. Some of them are really hard to find because they're really dated words that are used. She even called me this afternoon to ask Matt, who lived in Japan for four years, how to pronounce one of the words. (laughs) Right. And Emily has it in her mind, so I'm even going to probably ask her to pronounce it for me again. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So as uh, Mineko Iwasaki said in an interview about the world of the geishas, she said, that it is a very separate society that is shrouded in mystery. And because it, it, it was very separate in a very elitist world, world and one that was supposed to be kept private, people were not particularly comfortable speaking about it. So it's easy to see how people have misunderstood geisha to be sex workers, catering to rich clients since their conception. This is also due to eroticism and orientalism, which you've talked about before, by mm-hmm. Western media of geishas, i.e., Memoirs of a Geisha. And to dive right into it, Emily has touched on this in episode one about Matahari. Orientalism usually refers to the patronizing Western attitude towards Middle Eastern, Asian, and North African societies. It addresses the academic and artistic prejudices of outsiders interpreting the Eastern world. Tradition was reinforced by European imperialism. Edward said... That's his name, who redefined the word, said the Orient is a stage on which the whole East is confined to make the Eastern world less fearsome to the West. So it is actually truly hard to report on geishas because of the tradition of discretion surrounding their profession and their cultural misrepresentation by Western men. So it was like when I was doing my research, I was having to dive really deep. A lot of the articles that I would have even read maybe about two months ago. And just taken for at their word, I was like, no, that's not right. 
that's not correct. So even articles that are like, you know, in some pieces of, you know, magazines and newspapers, I was seeing their, like, their mistakes when reporting about geishas. Because it, okay. like I said, like, if you really don't understand their history, it's really easy to make mistakes. And some of those mistakes can be, like, just so hurtful, especially to the traditions in Japan. And yeah. Um, and so I said, before I begin, I'm doing the brief history on geishas. There's no way I can do this incredible profession justice. This episode is for ignorant people like me. And Harlots of History will definitely, again, be revisiting the subject and also a couple other types of people that I bring up in <laughs> this episode. So geishas are not sex workers or prostitutes. This does not mean that sex is off the table, but it differs from geisha to geisha, and it is usually extremely intimate and almost romantic. They are not concubines, but women who are living works of art and history. The word geisha literally translates to art person. Literally. Oh, Wow, right? I didn't know that. Right? And you do not have to be a historian on uh, Japanese culture to understand this. Geisha are women who project an unattainable perfection, i.e. like, you know, their beautiful makeup that they wear. They work their whole lives toward this and all their practices and beauty standards are closely guarded secrets. One thing that I thought was immensely interesting, I did not know this, was how worldly geishas are expected to be. A geisha entertains with singing, music, dance, storytelling, attentiveness, and flirtation, as well as speaking about politics, literature, or playing a drinking game. I love this quote from Carolyn Zinko in her article, True Geisha. In the terms that people might understand today, you'd have to picture her as part prima ballerina in terms of talent and part flight attendant, intending to her clients' non-sexual needs. Oh, okay. That makes right? sense. I, thought, I just thought that was like really easy for people, especially in the U.S., to understand. So I know you said that like sex, sex was like optional, right? But it wasn't like required, but it, it wasn't it required sometimes. It, 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 yes. And I, I I'm will sure actually, get into it. Yeah. But, yeah. So it's more like, it's like courtesans, right? Like we talked about that a little bit where it's no, not at all. No, not at all. Actually. Yeah. So that's, okay. that's what I said. Like, and it's also their courtesan and geisha's history is so linked in Japan. So it's, it's actually pretty easy to see how people did get confused. Because the courtesans, I feel like, especially in India, like they were very trained in different things. And like in India, the courtesans, and we'll be doing an episode on this in a little bit later, but like the courtesans would have to be trained in like 65 different things. Right. Oh, awesome. them. Yeah. Yep. 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 And I will definitely get into that. Geishas right. today are modern women who want to help preserve history in the past. And in a time when Japanese wives were excluded from public life in general, geisha were the women who could play the role of the attentive female at business gatherings. So now we're going to get into probably as much history as any one of us has ever talked about on this podcast. So it's okay. a little heavy. Interject me whenever you can. It just is really necessary to understand geishas. Back in the 1920s, there was as many as 80,000 geisha. Today, there are fewer than 1,000. This can be uh, attributed to the greater equality between the sexes and rising costs of being a geisha. Back in the day, becoming a geisha was the way for a woman to have uh, independence, and there wasn't many ways for a woman to do that. Uh, the image of a geisha as we know it today was not solidified till the late 1700s. Their history began in the Edo period when Japan was not at war and they created pleasure districts and these were walled. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And they were actually modeled after ones in the Ming dynasty in Japan, uh, in China. So a lot cool. of the early ideas, uh, sex workers, courtesans and entertainers, they actually came from modeled after the ones in China. So these walled pleasure houses had restaurants and tea houses and brothels. There were strict rules and brothels and sex workers could not operate outside the districts. And again, here's my first 
Here's my first Japanese word. Uh, this is one I could not find a pronunciation for, but it's called Taiyus. We're an early pre- predecessor in Kyoto. They were both a combination of sex worker and actress, and they had to be classified and licensed. So these were like in the 1600s and even earlier. Oh. And they so they had licenses? to be classified. Yes. Whoa. And Kabuki theater actually originated from their erotic dances and skits. Geisha and Kabuki theater are two professions that work closely together because they're in the same districts today. Many retired Geisha marry Kabuki performers. Then it transformed into the profession we might recognize as courtesan, where the women became highly accomplished entertainers as well as sex workers. Some were even like amazingly famous poets. Uh, oh, and cool. Yeah, right. And from this, the geisha profession started to form. The first people who were known as geishas were men who entertained the guests waiting for the Orion or the high-status courtesans of the day. So that's one word we have to remember because we have to do a full other episode on Orions. Okay, uh, so Orions were the courtesans and geishas of the day. But yes, okay. and Orions were like high class. And then there was the uh, Yujo or Yuho, I, I, again, I apologize. More com- They were the more common sex workers. So there was, of course, a, different levels. I think levels. it's J. I think it's a, like a hard J, like like you first said. Yujo? Yujo. That's what I thought. Yeah, I think so. Again, I'm not like, I, yeah. I think just yeah. from what I've heard. Right. And a geisha was the name used for any skilled entertainer in the 1700s. There was also the Odorico, who were the young, chaste females who performed for the wealthy samurai class in their homes. Many uh, order. Odoricos turned to sex working once they were not adolescents anymore and others decided to rename themselves, rename themselves as geisha. And so pretty much the geishas started to separate themselves from this courtesan class. And I, again, I'll get into that more, but there are so many stories about the first geisha, but there's a story of Kikuya, who was a skilled singer and Samishan player. And Samishan is a three ring, a three string instrument. And they play it with this like beautiful, huge pick. They were, she was a sex worker in 1730, but she rebranded herself. Ooh. Right. She was credited as being so immensely popular that she made the profession popular. That's cool. And Right. And geishas were... At first, really highly regula- regulated in where they could perform. They were forbidden in the 1800s from selling sex, and they were forbidden from wearing attention-grabbing hair ornaments and kimonos. The Orion were really important to society. Like, they were integral to society. They were integral to government, and the government protected them. Oh. So, yeah, and I, th- I think we could see, like, I mean, concubines were so, royal concubines were so important in Chinese culture. And so you could kind of just see how that, as it traveled over... Right. And then also like even in Europe and stuff, like we've talked about, we have, yeah, we've done this episode at this point, uh, like Madame de Pompadour and other like royal, like quote unquote mistresses and stuff at that point were like basically the prime ministers of France who would like had all this power. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's crazy. Kings, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the government protected them. The status of the Orion started to fade. The status of the courtesan started to fade as the geishas established themselves as an all-female, intelligent, worldly class of entertainer. Courtesans of all levels began to be seen as old-fashioned. The reason why geishas and the Orion culture flourished was because of the interaction between men and women in those days. It it was much more conservative than we were used to, and even Mm -hmm. as we're used to now. Traditionally, men did not go to their wives for sexual enjoyment or romantic attachment. Confucius even said that love was secondary. So people did not marry for love or attraction. Married for like bloodlines, right? Yeah. Or, or like just, or money. It, it was a like, match. 
I don't know. What does yeah. that mean? And like so many, yeah, right? I, I think like dowry and blood, like for like more like higher ups, I think it was bloodlines, like for kings and stuff, they'd be like, well, she'd had to have money, but then she also like, you know, had to be all this other stuff. But I think like right. dowry oh, I was, did. I think dowry was a big thing back then too. Good thing to look up, but yeah, definitely. And so um, I'm bringing her up a lot in my work, but anthropologist Liza Dalby in her book set, Geisha says, for the Japanese male of the 17th and 18th centuries, sex with wives was for procreation, sex with the yujo for recreation. Liza Dalby was one of the only Westerners to be taken into the geisha world like for 10 years. Yeah. So I will talk about her more later. The earlier geishas were classified into three different categories, whether they slept with clients or they did not. So the earliest geishas did, some of them did sleep with their clients. Geisha were more free than most women, including wives back then. By 1830s, geishas had become cultural icons and they were known widely by their name for their skills and appearance. They started many trends that we see today. Uh, Even today, some geisha are just more famous than we can imagine. They're like, they just, they're known by one name only. And they still exist though today. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And during a poorer time in Japan, many parents living in poverty would sell their young daughters as young as three or four to an okaya. Okaya is a geisha lodging house or a geisha house. Like I pretty much started picturing it like a drag house. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot more formal. That's pretty much how I pictured it. They started their training a few years later and many would become successful successful geisha. Uh, They would work to pay back the mother of the house. Mineko Iwasake Asaki went to an okaya or a geisha house at age four, but I do not believe she was sold by her family. Uh, I think she went by choice. Coerced sex was a part of geisha's life before World War II. World War II was a huge hit to the geisha profession. All the districts were closed and geishas were pretty much made illegal because of the wartime economy. And Japan needed all its available hands for the war effort. So like no access, anything was allowed. Many geisha worked in uh, factories and other like, you know, jobs like that. Even after the war, many former geishas stayed on in their jobs as factory workers or things that were other than being a geisha for stability because they didn't think that the profession of geisha would prosper after the war. Okay. The misunderstanding and appropriation of geishas is mainly the U.S.'s fault. Many Western photographers took photos of Japanese women in geisha-like appearance and pornographic poses. These pictures made their way back to the U.S., reinforcing the idea of geisha as sex workers during the occupation of Japan after World War II. American workers, American soldiers, sorry, lumped all the women in the entertainment industry like geisha, bar hostess, sex workers... Anyone that was in like the sex or entertainment industry, whether they sold sex or not, they lumped them together under the name geisha. This was partly because a group of sex workers in Japan started calling themselves geisha girls and started catering only to the American military. The men couldn't tell the difference. Right. Uh, of course not. Many <laughs> even started using the slang geisha with a double E. So that's what like some American men use. There was an incident in Ginza when the American GI were shouting in unison, we want geisha girls. <laughs> so like it just shows like how eroticized they were. Yeah. This time definitely lowered the status of geishas. Because it's uh, just, it, they're just like objects to the people who were taking over the country, like, or the, yeah, the occupation. I mean, yeah, yeah. And uh, occupation of Japan, that whole right. thing is problematic. And we, we don't even have time to get into that right now, but yes, no. definitely. Well, I think that too, like the, the, like the military, 
I think that's like a big thing even still today with the military and like sex workers in other countries. Like it's very, very oh, that's so interesting to explore because I really haven't done any research. Yeah, it would be, be really interesting? interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's it's. I think it's very common in yeah in the military today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back then too. But I think it's been yeah, and even in other other things we've researched too, like soldiers, like sex workers in Victorian England were like they were more protected to be with soldiers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, remember even mm-hmm. when I was exploring um well this this episode yeah will have come out the Wild West episode prostitute or no it hasn't come out yet oh it hasn't okay never mind no, it's okay but while exploring uh <laughs> sex working in the Wild West sex workers were encouraged to go along with armies because, you know, generals thought it, you know, increased morale, which I'm sure, I mean, having sex usually does increase people's morale. Yeah, you get your blood flowing. <laughs> wake up. Adrenaline pumping. Yep. Yeah, you're ready to go. <laughs> so uh, after World War II, there were many other job opportunities for women. So geisha numbers fell. Uh, geishas try to find stability as fast as possible. So they retired when they found a patron or a donna, which I'll talk about more in a little bit. After the war, Japan westernized and some geishas tried to change their appearance. And it was really like kind of just like strange to read. They were trying to serve like in their ochayas, their tea houses. They were trying to serve, you know, just these like really American nice cocktails. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to like ditch the kimono. This was quickly abandoned because it was seen as going against tradition. And the geisha then were actually seen as unfashionable for a time. They are now seen as protectors of a tradition. Prostitution was outlawed in Japan in 1956. So right after World War II. Orion exists only today as reenactors. So you'll see a lot of people, especially in like the parades that go during the festivals, because they have these beautiful parades in Japan, which go through like the history and time, like mm-hmm. from the very first people who conquered and the farmers to all these different historical that would characters. Be so cool. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. I even watched the coronation of the most recent emperor. It was insane. Oh, that's cool. I it was, was so, amazing. yeah. It was so cool. Um, it is really rare to see a geisha outside her Hanamachi, which is her geisha district. Many tourists pay to be dressed up as geisha and walk around Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Right? Geisha spotters. I'm talking oh. to YouTube geisha spotters. Can't really tell the difference. <laughs> the numbers have greatly fallen because of the secrecy of the world of geisha, the expense of being one, and also the expense of even seeing a geisha or being entertained by one, and a declining appreciation for traditional arts. The numbers in 2006 were 71 Maiko and 202 Geisha. So really quick, I will repeat this again. A Maiko is an apprentice Geisha. Okay. You have to be a Maiko before you can be a Geisha. Documentaries are the main inspiration for young women who want to join the profession now. A lot of current geishas and maiko say i saw this beautiful documentary i love seeing the life i love seeing the history and because of this i joined and it's probably probably not the same as the documentaries no no or is it tradition has actually remained largely unchanged for years which is really cool yeah yeah so their documentaries are actually like pretty accurate Mm -hmm. yeah what you see is what you get okay the most common place to see a geisha now is to see them during official festivals like the Kyoto Exhibition, which is held yearly. And they also do a really large tea service, the geisha in Kyoto in a very certain district during the Plum Blossom Festival. And it was like so beautiful to see. There are now patrols in Kyoto to keep tourists from harassing geishas in the street. You know how like people go around and like, I got to get your picture. Talk to me. Talk to me. 
and but geishas are very secretive people. Uh, many of the patrols are made by local businessmen who depend on their geisha for their livelihood. So the Hanamachi, the geisha districts, they're completely revolve. They revolve around the geishas and the kabuki actors okay. and the other like high level entertainers like them. And the men who are you going to get into this? Like, how do they rely on the geishas? Oh yeah. Like, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yep. So uh, let's get into their job description. So pretty much like if you're just like reading a definition, a geisha is known as a Japanese entertainer who practices traditional Japanese art forms. Geishas work in districts called hanamachis, which I talked about. They're actually like literally it translates to flower towns, which is pretty. Oh. Kyoto has five and those are the most prestigious. And Tokyo has six. These are unofficially ranked, and the best are visited by politicians and other men of status. Geishas and courtesans used to be grouped together in pleasure districts called kuriyaki, but obviously that was disbanded a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Geishas do not have to live within their hanamaki district, but they must be associated with an okaya, which is the geisha lodging house. And I'll be using that word okaya a lot more because it's like way quicker to say than geisha lodging house. And an in, in turn, an ochaya. So every like geisha okaya house has an ochaya, which is a tea house that they perf- like they entertain at. Okay. Mm-hmm. The career of a geisha is highly competitive, and the maiko, the apprentice geisha, and the geisha are publicly ranked. They're publicly ranked, which I'm just like, when you hear about the ages of these women, you're just like, what? Their appearance is one of the most important things because she's a, they're living works of art. And on the low end, it costs about $100,000 a year to be a geisha. What? It costs them a hundred thousand the geishas it costs a hundred thousand dollars? Yep. Although the career of a geisha can be prosperous, there is really no safety net for geisha. Uh no government government subsidiary, no unemployment. It's a historic job with a ton of risk. So Yeah. Yep. The main role of geisha can be pretty much summed down. I mean, this is like really dumbing it down to hostess. Uh if only we okay. could be such a hostess. Yeah. She'll host uh, private tea parties for men at her okaya, her lodging house, or sorry, her ochaya, her tea house. The keyword is private and secrecy. A geisha must be private and guarded about her clients because men see a geisha or go to a geisha party or a tea house as a place where they can let loose, get drunk, and have secretive or tentative business dealings. Geishas are seen as loyal to their patrons even when they're not with her. Courtesans are only being seen as like loyal for the night. Right. And yeah. so it's like because of the secrecy, many tea houses are were and are patronized by political parties and their rivals, you know, patronize other okayas, other tea houses. And mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy to think the amount of secret intelligence that geishas may and do know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Right? Right. And a geisha can never eat while working, even when her clients eat, but she will drink with them because a client cannot drink alone. So a geisha must hold her sake. Oh my gosh. So she, she must have to like, just eat a bunch of like pasta, like ramen right before they come to just like carb load. Right. Cause sometimes like these, these, uh, tea parties at the Ochayas can last like six hours. Yeah. You'd right? have to carb load before, before you could like drink that much. Right. And a geisha has to make sure the conversation is always going cup is always full. A geisha will smooth out an argument if two guests are arguing over a business deal. When it is appropriate, usually after the meal, she'll perform a dance or a song. Being a hostess is exhausting and her tea house, her ochaya is her workplace. Many feminists do see geisha as exploited women, but geishas themselves see them as liberated. Not being from the country, not really knowing anyone in the profession. I really don't Mm -hmm. feel like I have room to judge. Um, So let's get into the training because it's 
intensive. Like I have never trained for anything like this in my life and I probably never will. Maiko is a p- apprentice geisha. Like I told you today, women choose to be a geisha. Like you would choose any other profession uh, that takes years to be perfect and lots of schooling, like a career in the medical field. Geisha training is most compared to medical training. Oh, and like the like, amount of time yeah. and detail it takes. Yeah. And many geisha come from families of geisha. It's tradition. Okay. A girl must start her training right after junior high school or middle school. First, she must apply and be accepted to an okaya, which is, you know, the geisha lodging house, the drag houses that I was saying. They're not drag houses, but that's how I compare that's, them. Yeah. Yeah. In many situations, the okami, which is the mother of the house, pays for her training pays for the Maiko's training, pays for the Maiko's kimonos, living expenses. Some do pay for themselves and are more independent, even when living inside an okaya. Her okaya, her family that's within the lodging house, becomes her family and her support. A Maiko or a geisha usually take the name of her okaya, of the lodging house. Again, as her last name. Again, like a drag house. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Her okami or her mother manages her careers. She manages her appointments, her training. And again, not her biological mother. Usually okay. not her biological mother. So do they have any contact with their family? Yeah, they can. But it's like, it's like, it's like spaced out because, you know, she okay. has to focus on her studies. Yeah. Right. It's not forbidden or anything. Okay. Um, the Maiko or the Geisha always give a small percentage to their lodging houses, their okayas, their geisha houses to help maintain it and help support the other micos who are not earning yet, the geishas who are retired and live there, or the house staff. The world of a geisha is matriarchal and okayas must be usually owned by women. So the lodging houses are usually owned by women. Women in geisha society are seen as some of the most successful business women in Japan. So if you see if you read about any bios, especially like I'm just talking about like Wikipedia, about famous geishas, they're always like a successful Japanese businesswoman. That's what it oh. always says, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's like, it really is seen like a business. Mm-hmm. That's Definitely. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So an Okami, the mother of the lodging house, can make or break a geisha's career. The passing on of Okai, so the passing on of a lodging house is really important. So like the Okami, the mother, has to name an heir to her lodging house, her geisha house, whether it's a natural daughter or a, or a geisha. And this is sometimes done really early because the mother really wants to ensure that it's passing on in good hands. Okay. Which is just kind of, again, like a drag house. It's just crazy <laughs> how many alliteration, like how many like, you know, yeah, similarities I was able to see. Yeah. yeah. Um, it takes around six years of training to become a geisha. And a maiko has to s- closely study the arts of music, dance, tea ceremony, language, and hostessing. Again, like I was saying, you can only be a maiko when you're young. So if you miss the maiko period, you're never going to become a geisha. Right. You have to be like around 13 or so. Uh, 15. But you can start like you can start like working for an okaya, doing chores at like younger than that. But you're not you're not even a maiko yet. Okay. Yep. Only the best and most resilient make it to geisha status. But like I was saying about like the the micos doing chores in an okaya, like before they even become a maiko to earn their keep, that was more common in the older days. Okay. You know, micos study at a school called, and again, I'm going to probably butcher this, a cabarinjo. I'm so sorry. It is on the school stage where you are most likely to see a maiko perform because they put on performances. Some of them do it every day in their districts. The instrument in the highest demand is the samishen. Mm-hmm. Samishamisen. It is a large instrument like I was talking about with the three string, strings and large pick. They cost $10,000 each. Oh my gosh. 
So it's just showing how expensive this profession is. Um, it usually accompanies the maiko and the geisha in every dance they perform with a woman singing. There are other instruments, but the shamisen is the most vital, vital to geisha performances. So those players are so incredibly busy. And actually, they said the geisha, geisha profession has started to relax its rules a little bit to allow for more, quote unquote, modern women to be these shamisen players. Because it okay. takes like, you have to study underneath a master. Um, only certain men can, only certain people, they're mostly men, can make the instrument. It's just like one of those things where the, when you have so much exclusivity, if you start yeah. not having enough people to accompany your geishas and your micos to dance, well, yeah, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, totally. That's, yeah. Yep. And then there's this quote, uh, in the, the first year, every single day, it seemed like I was scolded all the time. That was my job to be scolded, said Komomo, a geisha in Kyoto. She said she was not permitted mistakes and only got a day off every month or two from lessons to performing. She was up from six in the morning to 12 at night. But like when we, sh- when so she intense. says, right, right. And I mean, six in the morning, 12, it's not that bad. But I was like, was she working from six in the morning, 12 at night? Because if so, makeup took like forever and I'll get into makeup too. But it sounds, yeah. Right. As well as arts of dance, tea ceremony and singing, a maiko must learn calligraphy and flower arrangement. I watched this YouTube about a maiko learning flower arranging and it's nothing like what we think. It's like these beautiful but simplistic arrangements and one that I thought was really beautiful like an older teacher or a geisha was like no 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 that red rose provides too much contrast and I was like well I'd be screwed in this class like (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah yeah it was it was just oh it was so crazy most maiko and geisha specialize in one or two of their skills you know whether it's singing or dancing but they must be better than okay so it's like they can't just be like I can do the rest they have to be like better than proficient Mm mm-hmm a Maiko must also relearn to walk uh, with Grace in her kimono without tripping over her hem. I would never be able see? to do that. Yes. Oh my gosh. It looks, I, I'm so impressed. I'm she so must, impressed. I can barely right? walk in yoga pants without tripping over them. Right, right. Uh, she must speak in the accent of her Hanamachi or her geisha district and learn how to flatter a man in all moods while pouring sake without getting her sleeve wet. So I'll talk about it later, but her sleeves like touch the floor while standing. Yes, Can you imagine yeah. trying to pour wine without getting no. your sleep, right? The graduation from Maiko to Geisha is called Irigaje, where mm-hmm. the Maiko trades her red collar for a white one. And I'm just bringing up the graduation because it does come up later and it's kind of important. The Geishas will retire. They can retire um, either to leave the profession for another, to get married, or to become the head of an Okaya. In the ultra traditional districts in Kyoto, a Geisha must retire if she marries, but you can see married Geisha in Tokyo. Uh, the dream for many Geishas is to head their own prosperous Okaya or Ochaya, so their own house and tea house. They become Maiko and Geisha with this dream in mind. So like many documentaries I was watching, all the Maikos and the geisha they were interviewing were like, they were like, what was your, what's your dream? Like, what do you want from this? And they're like, I want to own my own house. Yeah. My own, like my own geisha house. Yeah. They're all of them. Even Maikos who had only been in it for a year. That's I was like, so cool. wow, it's just such a, like a frame of mind that I really envy. Yeah. That mm-hmm. like ambition is really, yeah. Right. Right. Um, and when a geisha retires, she does not entertain at parties anymore. But she she's still like a revered guest. An Okaya may be run by an active geisha, but usually not. Because like, how can you be an active geisha and run a whole household full of other micros and geisha? 
Like I don't, there's like so much that goes into it. You have to you have to learn all this stuff, and then you'd have to like be in charge of all these people too. It just sounds so like intensive. Mm-hmm. Right, and geishas can work up until the age of ninety. Ninety? Yeah. Yes. If she works up until the age like as old as she wants, she's still expected to train regularly. The youngest practicing Maiko is fifteen, and the oldest practicing geisha is eighty-seven. Oh my gosh. And like, it's really cute because when you see these that lady dances, sounds awesome, whoever she is. Right. And when you see, you know, an exhibition or whatever, and you see these dances, you see like a geisha who like is probably like in her fifties and sixties. Oh, wow. And she's like so beautiful and so lovely. And I just love the idea that this profession is, of course, beauty is valued, but these women can can if they want grow old in this profession yeah and you can you can be good at and especially i'm sure like at 50 or 60 like you would have been doing it what for like 30 40 years probably like 40 if not yeah mm-hmm. yeah so you'd just be really good at it at that point or yeah. bored of it i don't know or bored <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna get on to uh makeup and hair and clothing getting ready takes hours of work first for makeup the only colors allowed in makeup for a geisha or a maiko is white, black, and red. And then from the red, the pink for the blush. Geisha and maiko wear oshiroi, which is like a white powder that we're used to seeing their face. And it's actually liquid that they pat on powder afterwards. Okay. And it's like the way that they pat is like literally when they're patting, it sounds like it's yes. like so crazy. Yes, yes. I've, I've like seen that before. Yeah. Right. And they also, when they're doing their white makeup, they leave like a square on their neck, on the nape of their neck, where you can see the natural color of their skin. And you can also see it around their scalp line. So it's like not, they want to show you that they're wearing makeup. They're not trying to make it seem like this is the way I naturally look. look. Okay. They want it to be seen as a mask. And also the Japanese, especially back in the day, viewed the nape of the neck as the most erotic part of the body. Okay. So in older times, this uh, white powder contained lead, which actually, you know, as it did in England back in the days and everything, gave its wearers a yellow color and premature wrinkles, and it sometimes resulted in lead poisoning. It's, of course, the powder is harmless now. It's okay for you. And when geishas get older, they can choose to stop wearing the powder. So it's actually really like interesting to see because you're like, are they a geisha? Their face is not like powder yeah, white. Yeah, like how and would they, you be able to? Yeah. It's, no, tell. but they still are because their hairstyle and everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, as everything else is so regulated in the geisha life, so is everything in their appearance. You have to earn the right to like wear these different things. So first year micos are only allowed to line their bottom lip with lipstick and they can't wear eyeliner. So it's like their faces literally just look really white. And okay. then the differences physically, which I'll get into between Maiko and Geisha, like once you like know the differences and I don't know if you're able to pull up the photos. Oh yeah. But yes, let's go look at these photos really quick because um, they're very like able for you to like really be able to tell a difference. Yeah. So the first few pictures I have are the Orion, the courtesans, and you okay. can tell just by their hair. Mm-hmm. Um, ornaments and just like how flashy they are that they're courtesans. And then the first couple of pictures I have a geisha and then I have a couple of the micos. And so I don't know if you want to look at them while I'm like talking about this. Yeah. Just kind of. So micos wear more blush. Geishas wear thicker eyeliner and they put red at the corner of their eyes and paint their lips fully red. In Japanese beauty standards, the smaller the mouth, the more beautiful. So the lips are really beautifully drawn, but small. And many geishas choose to wear lighter makeup over their career. Married and imperial women in Japan used to blacken their teeth. So like you would see there, yeah. In a practice called 
Ohaguro, so did geishas. It's a beauty standard that changed with time. Mm-hmm. And then before becoming a maiko, the young girl must grow her hair very long because it is the hair that's used to make the ornate style that we're used to seeing. A maiko will wear her hair up in five different styles over her like time of being a maiko to show her progress. Her intricate hairstyle is sometimes held up with wire that must last all week. Still today, they do not get to sleep on a pillow for five years. They have, pillow, to, sleep, no they have to sleep on a wooden block with a little padding because their hairstyle has to last them all week. There's sounds, a rumor that like old Okimas, the older mothers back in the day used to put like rice powder. So like if it got caught to their hair, show their head dipping, they would get in trouble. Oh my gosh. Yep. That and so, so they uncomfortable. Can, right. Pillows and they can are also, amazing. Right. And they can never go out. Michaels can never go out in normal dress. During they their like five, six years of training because their hair is always done. So like when you're a Michael, you always have to be on. And mm-hmm. that's one really awesome thing about retiring, not retiring. What am I saying? But like graduating to becoming a geisha is you do have a bit more autonomy than you did as a Michael. Because you can go out in your without like, looking like looking yeah. normal. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Michael wear many decorations in their hair. Well, geisha do not. Flowers dangling over the left side of a Maiko's face show that she's a first year. So we see that a lot, like the beautiful, like three flowers dangling. Okay. Um, when a Maiko graduates to a geisha, she gets to use the Shimada wigs, like the beautiful hairstyles that we see. They cost $5,000 a piece, a Shimada wig. Those and wigs. they, yes, the, the geisha wigs do. Yep. And oh they get gosh. to sleep on the pillow. She gets to leave in normal clothing. So now we're going to get on to kimonos. And learning about kimonos made me so pissed at Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Kimonos cost $50,000 each before accessories. Before accessories. There is a long tradition to wearing them. They're worn with an obi, belt tied in a bow, Zori thong sandals. And those are actually like the first flip-flops. Those inspired flip-flops when people brought them back from World War II to like their respective countries. Oh, that's cool. Right? And toe-divided tabi socks. Kimonos are made from one bolt of hand-woven cloth called tomono. Although a kimono is not worn commonly today because of the popularity of Western styles, it's still worn for special occasions like funerals and weddings by the Japanese public. The elderly may still wear them daily, the geisha while they're working, and sumo wrestlers must wear a kimono at public in all times, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, that's really cool. Right? I kind of I didn't know really that. Cool. And right, and the mayor of Kyoto is still working today to register kimono culture with UNESCO as part of their intangible cultural heritage list. He was the one that like wrote Kim the letter, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, kimonos are kimonos are hand sewn, and they have to be taken apart to be washed. Oh my gosh, it's just to be taken apart. Yes, yes. And many of the like the the top line kimonos are only produced by like a handful of people. And Japan has this like, and I think China does too. They have this practice where someone who's like really revered in their craft and they do traditional things. They're called a living national treasure. That's really cool. I know. I was like, I want to be a living national treasure. I know. <laughs> right. And between seasonal motifs, crests, formalities, sleeve length, kimono culture is fascinating. Would take a lifetime to study. A kimono is difficult to wear. A kimono outfit has 12 or more pieces. Can you imagine wearing 12 things? Like, no. with like all these different, yeah. And a geisha or a maiko is dressed every day that they are working by a licensed kimono dresser. Oh my God. And I watched about it, and it's like they're usually men in a family in a business going back generations. So, what it's like is um, they're like probably about two families that do it in each Hanimachi or district. And it's like a man and his son, and they spend like five minutes with each geisha and Maiko, like rushing around and like getting them dressed. And it's insane. Like the length of a kimono 
is folded up at the waist. So if it's too long or anything, it's like folded up at your oh, waist okay. and tied. Yeah. So it's like, so in, as I watched it and I was like, my jaw dropped because I That's was like, how? So interesting. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. And a Maiko wears a kimono that has like the really beautiful long sleeves. They touch the ground when she drops her arms and they're like, so anytime you see uh, someone that you might think is a geisha and like long, colorful, intricately adorned with embroidery or hand paint, like something that's really bright, they're probably a Maiko. So they're uh, really similar to the furry sewed kimonos that we're usually used to seeing young women wear on special occasions, you know? Mm-hmm. Like their coming of day, age, or celebrations before their wedding. And in Amiko, her color is red. And her obi is long and wide and it hangs behind her back. And so you'll see that in the pictures I sent you. Okay. And so like that's the easiest way to tell Amiko to me. A micro oh, yeah. geisha is that her her obi hangs, whereas a geisha's is like tucked like a present. It's really, it's really pretty. Okay. She also she, she looks super young too. Gosh, but Maikos are so cute. Geishas she's, are beautiful. Maikos are so cute. So and I, cute. I know. So she, cute. Yeah. she looks young. Like she's got to be like, oh, what, well, like 14, 15, uh, right? Yeah. They started. Yeah. Yep. And the Maikos wear like really tall wooden clogs called a kobo to keep their kimono from dragging on the ground. Okay. And learning to walk in this outfit without falling over is like a huge part of her training. Um. Yeah. I can see that. I and, still don't know I, how you would do that. Right. And for those who are really interested, the Maiko kimonos are called hikisuri. So, but yeah. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't remember that. A geisha wears a more simple kimono. So you'll see, like, the geishas look more simple and beautiful because, like, she doesn't need the charms of everything that she's wearing to, like, entertain her guests. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to wear the taller, taller Okobo clogs, but she wears, like, the zori or the simple, more simple or flip flops. Her okay. obi is tied on her back and does not hang down. She wears a, a kimono that has shorter sleeves. So her kimono doesn't hang to the ground. Just like she just has, seems like she has a lot more freedom of movement. And she also has the white collar as the graduation, they change from the red to the white collar. And when you're seeing like the Maikos and the Geishas dance, get ready to fall down a rabbit hole because I watched (laughs) them dancing for like hours. Like the fan dancing is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And their hand movements are like the prettiest things. But like Maikos really have to use their sleeves when they dance. Sometimes they like flip it over their hands. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's like really cool because like they have to use their sleeves because they're so big. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah. Yeah. And kimonos and hairstyles are used to tell where geishas and micos are in their career and distinguish them from other kimono wearers. There are many sophisticated dress codes. Like I said, back in the day, that's how you told the difference between geisha and sex workers. Because like I think even for you, it was really easy to tell between the reenactment of the courtesan, the orion, mm-hmm. between the geishas and the micos. Mm-hmm. Um It's also like a lot of geishas perform alongside kabuki theater actors. And like before I did my research, I've been like, oh, okay, they're all geishas. But no, like the kabuki theater, like the minute you see a geisha out of her hairstyle and you see performing a little bit more expressive and like her obi isn't the way it should, you're just like, okay, that's not a geisha. That's not a maiko. Right. Yep. And like I said, geishas adopted their makeup and hairstyle from glamorous characters in kabuki theater back in the day. So that's why there's like a ton of similarities in their makeup. Okay. So this is the fun part. Hiring a geisha. (laughs) Sorry to every person who thinks that they can waltz into Japan and see or hire a geisha. You can't. You need to have the right connections. Uh, First, only men used to be allowed in the tea houses. Women are allowed today, but still. The geisha must be contacted through her okaya or her house. There's a saying that no one gets told yes when they first go to an okaya. 
you need to have someone to introduce you. So it all falls to connections, just like a lot of other things do. Yeah. If you know a geisha, you can call a geisha. But most, so most people, even the Japanese public are out of Don't luck. know them. Yeah. Yep. And a businessman would throw a geisha party to show his potential clients a good time. And he would impress them with how wealthy and cultured and well-connected he is because geisha parties are exclusive. To have a geisha or a maiko at a banquet is extremely lavish and a status symbol. You can really only have it at a high-class banquet hall that is like specifically made for that in private rooms. Some hire geishas for events outside the Hanamachi, outside their district, which requires travel and they charge for travel. Yeah. And they said that they call their travel their flower money because it's so extra. Oh, thank you. Love that. Right? I love it. Um, and as uh, Liz Dalby, Liza Dalby said, uh, if you're the sort of man who's cultivated geisha, presumably you're interested in traditional arts and it shows that you're a person of culture. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to pay the geisha, the bill is sent to the client afterwards. So the bill is never talked about while the client and the geisha are together. Do they like have an idea of what it will be or they just, yeah. They yeah. Just- um, the price is never haggled over or discussed. Okay. The price or at least the possible fluctuation in the price is acknowledged beforehand. Geishas cost upwards from 150 hours, $150 an hour per guest. So, Oh, okay. I was like, going to say $150 an hour doesn't seem like that much per guest. There you go. And All also right. like most, like when you're talking about like six hours for like a usual tea part, like I, like that's, that's where like, I feel like a lower, like sometimes they go up as high. Like I've seen like it's 300 an hour. The so central... Like- yeah, I'm go trying ahead. to figure out like that'd be like a thousand. Like let's say you just had like ten people there, that'd be like ten thousand dollars, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, considering that if it costs you a hundred thousand dollars a year, and like seeing like the if you watch like Geisha and Maiko entertaining at an Ochaya at a tea house, there's like one for every man, and it's like so funny because they're like so like laughing and giggling and playing drinking games, and but still being like so beautiful and elegant. And they're like making sure that like there's no lull in the conversation. They're so right. talented. So does each geisha? So like, let's say you had you had ten people and you had five geishas. Would each geisha charge 150 per customer? See, or? That's, that's where I couldn't. I looked it up and I couldn't find couldn't the information. Find it? Okay, it seems seems like they go in smaller groups, and when they're at a banquet, it seems like there's like a flat rate. Okay, that makes sense. So like, you yeah. would probably be like everyone would be like it would be like 150 per hour per guest. Like, well, or and per, also, per, like, like per, per geisha because they're just one-to-one maybe. And also like in most okayas and most geisha houses, there's not like more than three or four geishas per house. Okay. okay. Because like, you know, like the time and the investment that is in each one, the like house can't really afford because the house funds them. Okay. I didn't really in the that beginning. Small. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why like the number, like I was saying, there's only like what, 200? Like okay. it, 202 geishas registered in all of Japan in 2006. So yeah. Right? Right? And like our fascination with them, like it mm-hmm. far exceeds their number. Yeah. And so uh, the central office for geisha affairs charges each guest. So the geisha, even the geisha houses don't really like it's like this, there's like a, there's a government central office in each district. Oh, wow. Um, 
and each geisha or maiko must be registered to her central office in her district. Uh, most clients tip generously, and most of her money goes to maintaining her appearance and her okaya, her house. Some generous clients or benefactors even become her dana, which is a patron. Geishas used to know how much to charge by determining how like long it took to tur- like burn one incense stick. And I was just thinking like if I was like looking at my time being charged, I would just be watching that stick burn down. Yeah. Now it's just a flat rate. <laughs> okay. it's like, it's that, that seems a little bit more fair. <laughs> right, right. And so taking a Donna or a patron, and this was something that was like really discussed in Memoirs of a Geisha, is an unspoken tradition. A Donna would become a Geisha's financial benefactor. Uh, this was extremely expensive due to the Geisha's cost of living. In return, the Donna would engage with the Geisha on a more personal level, sometimes involving sex, not always. Some Donna's were and are married. Uh, many married men visit geishas because again, it's just, it's, it's nothing sexual. It's just entertainment, you know? Right. Um, not for sexual reasons. So being a Donna or having a Donna is not as common today, but it still happens. Intimacy is not necessary, but it's really like treasured today because being someone's Donna is such like a treasured and formal bond. And it's just so expensive. Right. So for somebody to be your Donna, it's like really special now. Yeah. Yeah. And most geisha are actually single women and they have relationships outside their Hanamachi, outside their districts, outside their Okayas, and even outside their Donnas if they have one. Oh. So women really live freely, a lot freer than I expected, right? Yeah. I mean, you would imagine that like they would have to come back to the houses at the like end of the day and like, because you probably no. can't. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, and like they actually don't have to even live in their hanamachis. They don't have to live in their districts. They just oh, have they to be have associated to. with an okaya with a geisha. So they just have to be associated. Okay, yeah. so they can have like their own apartments and stuff. They don't have right? to be okay. And that's cool. In all my research, I was trying to like, was there any scandals involving a geisha? There was one, one <laughs> that I found. I couldn't find any other, and it happened in 1989. Uh, Prime Minister Sasuke Uno had to retire after his affair with a geisha surfaced. He paid a geisha 21000 for a brief sexual liaison uh, a couple years before. Although extramarital affairs were far from, like, they, they, they were the norm. They were far mm-hmm. from not being the norm. Right. The Prime Minister faced backlash. The geisha Mitsuko Nakanishi, sorry, that was so bad, guys, came forward because he was unkind to her. And she felt like he did, was, wasn't ready to be prime minister. He wasn't fit to be prime minister. No. So, uh, and she, um, she was actually, like, anonymous for years. Oh, wow. So this is where we're going to talk about something that is like extremely controversial in uh, geisha culture. And a lot of people, like when they do know geisha culture, they know this, but they don't really know all the details. Um, Mizuage uh, was a ceremony undergone by Orion the courtesans and some Maiko apprentice geishas. It symbolized their coming of age and or their graduation to a geisha. It is when their virginity was sold to a wealthy Donna who supported their graduation. In rare instances, some Okimas, the mothers, sold the Maiko's virginity to more than one customer. So they pretended that they're even, yeah. yeah, So, and they pocketed it. An autobiography of a geisha, Sayo Masuda writes of her experience with Okayas and Mizuage. I desperately want to read this book in full. I didn't discover it until my research. And her virginity was sold multiple times over for profit under the pretense that she still had it. Mm-hmm. Her contract as a geisha was sold to one of the purchasers. So like, you know, she was pretty much her, her Donna was one of the purchaser 
bits of her Mizuage. And like, she was so unhappy in it. She was also sold to hmm. become a geisha when she was really young. It wasn't a life she chose, but she ran from her Donna and her geisha life the rest of her life. And she was, a, her life was a horribly sad one. Aww. It was, yeah, it was really sad. But just that Mizuage is like really important, her account of it. And her autobiography was actually published 45 years before Geisha a Life by Mineko Iwasake, who claims to be the first geisha to publish her memoirs. And of course, we're going to talk about Mineko Iwasake. She was the woman that Arthur Golden interviewed for Memoirs of a Geisha. Right. During and after World War II, some sex workers used the term Mizuage while working, like while they worked, to, and they created further confusion about this term. Okay. Mizuage was prohibited with the banning of prostitution in Japan in 1956. And today, Amiko's graduation is not sexual. In Geisha a Life, Mineko Iwasake, who we're going to get into in just a little bit, explained Mizuage as a graduation, as a form around a round of formal visits and a presentation of gifts to Okayas and Donnas. And she said, all Maiko and Ge- Geisha today make their own personal choices regarding sex. Uh, the Geisha mothers of Ponte Cho were quoted as saying in right after the war. All Maiko have been through junior high school, so they aren't as ignorant as we were, right? They're pretty much pick their own boyfriends and patrons when they're ready. That's not the same as Mizuage. So it's it stands this reason that the quality of the sexes has actually also benefited geishas. But again, I can't speak from experience. I can't speak from knowledge. It's very hard to touch on those subjects within this culture it is and also like like think about where you were mentally as a middle schooler or like freshman in high school like that's such a young age to have like the rest of your life this is what i'm gonna do for this i know it just it's like i said it's such a resolve of character that i actually really envy yeah being like 14 15 and then like having to do what is like 18 hour days of like just straight training. Like that's so intense. And, and also, yeah. And so remember they, the geishas like take their micos around and they're called onisans and they take them around as like a big sister. Okay. And they help introduce them to all the houses. I'm surprised I didn't, I'm like, I definitely thought I had that. I must've accidentally deleted it, but oh well. Yeah. That's cool. That's like, they like, yeah. So they take them around and they introduce them to all these different houses and like how good of a relationship and how amazing your only son is actually really has to do with how well you do as a geisha. So there's yeah. like a ton of patronage and there's like a ton of like help within the community for Michaels. They're like really not left on their own. And there's actually this really like cool thing that I, I found that I thought was just really awesome. In fact, Maiko do not interact with clients until they're 18 or older. Okay. Well, that's so good. even though they'll start training younger, they don't. And they are considered off limits for flirting mm-hmm. and are acknowledged by the clients as un- younger and more vulnerable. And the clients really recognize their inexperience and they're really kind to them. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was just, I just, yeah, there's like more protection. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really cute. And so now we're going to get into the heavy stuff. And this is where I really want your opinion. Um, So before I talk about Mineko Iwasake and Arthur Golden, I want to say that Arthur Golden's not the only one who's misrepresented a culture and reinforced Orientalism. And again, it is because it's book Memoirs of a Geisha that I am doing this episode. Shirley MacLaine played a geisha in a 1962 comedy called My Geisha, where she disguises herself as a geisha because she believes her husband is cheating on her with one. I just watched the trailer and I was horrified. And I quote, she asked the mother of the house, 
could I put on one of those costumes and make my face white like that? Oh my God. It's such, yes. it's so, uh, it's such appropriation. Like it's so bad. And it promotes geisha as courtesans and party girls. Even John Wayne starred in a movie called The Barbarian and the Geisha in uh. 1958, where he keeps a geisha as a mistress. Which mm. is not something that happens. Just like the barbarian, right? Would be bad. Right. But yeah. Oh my yeah. God. And so Mineko was actually the most famous geisha in all of Japan until her shocking early retirement in the prime of her career at age 29. My age. Oh. Right? She was well known throughout the 1960s and 70s. She worked in the Gion district, which was the most illustrious of all the geisha districts. Geishas are actually referred to as geikos. In Gion, you'll actually be referred, you'll hear geishas being referred to as geikos quite often. She was born in 1949 as Masako Tanaka. She performed for many celebrities, political figures, and royals, such as Queen Elizabeth and President Gerald Ford. She was named heir to her Okaya when she was just an apprentice. So when she was a Maiko, she was such an amazing Maiko that her mother of her house was like, you're my heir. You're not my daughter. You're my heir. Oh my gosh. Right? Can you imagine? Like, that, that's how amazing she was. She was the youngest of 11 children. She started studying traditional Japanese dance at an Okaya at the age of four, and she was adopted by the Okaya's owner and took the Okaya's name Iwasake as her own. Uh, her first name, Mineko, came from a fortune teller, which is kind of cool. By age 16, she was Japan's most popular Maiko. And she became a geisha at the age of 21, um, which is really young when you consider like most Maikos. Like, yeah, I guess it's like, I guess it's the same age, but you know, it's just like, it's just like to become a full-fledged person in your profession at age 21 for any of them is just really, right? Her idea of play was more practicing and she said she never engaged in age-appropriate activities but always wanted to be learning. She rarely had a day off, slept three hours a night. She said she worked herself to her limits and developed an almost fatal kidney infection. In a public competitive ranked system, she rose to the top and it was clear that she was the best. Maneko was booked years in advance. Oh my gosh, years in advance? Years in advance. Everyone knew who was earning the most. And we're talking about like a young group of women, like just super gossipy and jealous, no matter how accomplished they are. She was the source of so much jealousy and gossip. And she was also faced with a lot of sexual harassment when male clients try to force themselves on her. And again, we know about her experience. We don't know about other geishas experience. So we can't say that this was like limited to her only. That would have been so hard too. Like not only are you having to deal yeah you're like yeah everyone's jealous of you but then also at the same time like you're having to deal with like all this sexual harassment because of your status as you know the best or whatever the best exactly exactly getting harassment like from all sides right and she was reportedly making four million dollars a year oh my god during the 60s and 70s and up to one thousand dollars an hour at the traditional ochayas or the tea houses. Four million so she, then in that money. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And at the death of one, um, after the death of one of her closest mentors in 1980, she became frustrated with the inadequate education for geishas and her other archaic, her words, not mine, traditions in the unchanging world of the Geico. She hoped that her retirement would shock her geisha district of Gion into reform. She also wanted to leave the all-consuming world of the geisha for other things she wanted to do. She wanted to marry. She wanted to be a mother. Wanted to do artistic ventures. 70 other high-ranking geishas followed her into retirement. Oh, my gosh. But 
ultimately nothing really changed. She believed and still believes that the career is doomed if the geisha world does not adapt to the changing world socially and economically. She also said much later that she doesn't think her retirement changed anything, but it was still pretty cool. She got that many to follow her. Regardless of like whether or not changed anything, I'm sure it changed the lives of those 70 women that followed her. I mean, and there was, there was small changes and she's like, that's nothing. But I think in a world that's unchanging, small changes are something. I still think it's a big deal. I mean, I think like, I think if you can change one person's life, then that is like a huge thing. But if you can change 70 women's lives, like right. they probably didn't like, teacher. yeah, <laughs> <Such a teacher>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like literally, like, I mean, most of us hope to just make like changes to literally just one person, but right. 70 people, that's a lot. Cause they, I mean, I'm sure it was really hard to get out of it at that point. Right. And she, at the age of 29, retired in Gion and became a, re- a revered guest at tea ceremonies instead of hosting them. So she still like lived in the same district. She became an artist when she married artist Jin Ichiro Sato in 1982. So just two years after she retired, they had a child, Kosuke, in 1983. And it was just so sweet. I wanted to say it. She said her daughter taught her to be a mother as she was teaching her daughter to be a child because she didn't have a traditional childhood, if you remember. Aww. And she said that her daughter taught her the most as she was like raising this happy child. Oh, I love and that I makes me so happy. Right. And it's like, not that she had like a bad history at all necessarily. She had some trouble of course, but it was just like so cute. Well, yeah. If you and don't so, if you're, like grow up and you don't, you don't have a childhood, your whole childhood is like, this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the lovely person that is Arthur Golden from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And every time Karamia says the lovely person, it means that that person. They're made of poop. Um, <laughs> So he interviewed poop too much, <laughs> right? Oh, just too much poop. Yeah. Um, so he interviewed Maneko for his books, uh, his book Memoirs of a Geisha. He also interviewed a couple other geishas for his book, but at this time, Mineko was living quietly in retirement. She promised an interview with him if he kept her identity a secret. So when he was introduced to her by a Sony executive, uh, she like invited him into her home in Kyoto and he stayed for two weeks while interviewing. So she, he was like living with her hospitality and she for was two weeks. What was she retired at this point? Yep. She was okay. Retired at this point. And so this was like in the early nineties. So she declined to sign a confidentiality agreement because he was, came from the family that owned the New York times and she's a geisha. And so like from like other men of business, she thought that they were like men of honor. Oh, so she yeah. thought that just because he came from a family who owned a really illustrious company that he was a man of high honor, but Americans are not especially no. honorable, especially the rich ones. So she she thought that he was doing an interview, like maybe for the New York Times. Did she know he was writing no, no, a no. book? Yeah, she says, and I I quote from her: Arthur said he wanted to create with my help a novel that depicts the life of geishas without prejudice or sensationalism. Sensationalism, and it was like solely sensationalized. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, fiction. So he named in her. Uh, he named her in after he said that he would keep her identity a secret. He named her in the book acknowledgments it, when it was published in 1977, and he widely broadcasted her name in interviews. In the acknowledgments, he wrote, "I am indebted to one individual above all others, Mineko Iwasaki." And he refused her request to remove it, remove their name, her name, I saying feel like it was too late. 
common thing in the 70s for like guys to be like, oh, yeah, we'll keep you confidential. And then they release it and they're like, oh, and guess who this is? <laughs> but this is this is like late 90s. So he could oh. do better. 1997. I mean, they should have done better in the 70s, too. Yeah. But like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just just men in general. <laughs> right. And also he said it was too late, too late to stop him from destroying her former life and relationships. She even contemplated suicide because of how serious it was to breach the traditional geisha code of secrecy. Oh my he God. He tarnished her character and she got death threats. Well, it's so, like, yeah, he, he like probably couldn't understand how important of like a cultural thing it is. It's like the whole, like, maybe you shouldn't have been writing about it, right? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's not the same, but it's like, you know, we're talking about Kim Kardashian. Like, how could you even think to do the kimono thing? Like, how could you even think to like appropriate a culture like that? But I mean, there's some people that you just like, you just don't really understand. Went on a rant. I went on a rant the other day about it. I just like, I was like, so I'm, not that I don't want some of her underwear garments. They look amazing. Just name but, like your underwear. Name. Yeah. You're not being clever. Sometimes um, I'm in my like office and I'm researching stuff and Matt's like out in the kitchen and I just start yelling like obscenities at my computer and he's like, hey, babe, are you OK? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's fine. I'm just researching. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. my God. I'm, like, I'm exactly the same. Like or I'm just like, oh, can't like I just couldn't. But yeah. Yeah. So she actually sued him for a breach of confidentiality because of this, as well as defamation of character and memoirs of a geisha was published to great acclaim. It spent over two years on the bestseller list and sold over 4 million copies and was translated into 32 languages. Did you ever read it? I did. I actually think I had a, a book club in middle school. Well, I didn't have it. My mom like set it up, I think with her your mom I, I don't know but i i was in a book club and i'm pretty sure that we read it i remember reading it for like a book club i'm briefly reviewing it review it because um, it was a long time ago and so there's been was, a lot of wine between then right <laughs> uh so the book pandered to western ideals by harmfully combining fact and fiction it tells of sayuri a young woman from a fishing village sultan okaya who triumphs over her rivals become the most praised geisha of the 1920s her rivals were vicious world war ii and competing donnas play a huge part in the book golden's character of sayuri was closely based on maneko and the path of when was maneko when was after after world war okay okay but the path of sayuri's life mimics Maneko's. Even the positive events from Maneko's life were written about really negatively in Memoirs of a Geisha. Arthur was inconsistent while writing about Gion, her Geisha district, and he embellished to the point of almost fraud. She was extremely upset with how he addressed Mizuage in the book. It was callously written as a common prostitution ritual. In the novel, the main character Sayuri's virginity is auctioned off to the highest bidder, uh, bidder. Golden said in his interviews, like live interviews. He said that this scene came from Maneko's life. Mm -hmm. He said it in interviews. Maneko said that it never happened this way and it did not happen in her Okaya. She said that the phrase Mizuage also refers to the earnings in Gion. And that is how she used it. Like her, you know, I clearly remember this part of the novel after reading it decades ago. Like I remember this guy, he like collected people's virginities, like their blood. Like, I just remember, like, it so vividly. And, like, I'm just so grossed out now that, like, me as an 11-year-old was, like, reading this horrible yeah. misrepresentation. I don't know. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I really do think that virginity is a patriarchal construct. 
It's invented to make, and of course, sex is a big deal. And I'm not saying that it's not a big deal. And, and like, you know, having sex for the first time should be a big deal. But I think like losing your virginity, I think at its core, if you go back, it's like men wanting to take this innocence. And that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from that cherry. I hate that phrase so much. It's so, first of all, have you ever eaten a cherry? Cherries do not pop. Second of all, the hymen is like, <laughs> like right, the hymen no. is such a myth. It's like, yeah. And yep. I mean, it exists. Some but women like, are born without one, like without yeah. that like layer. Yeah. yeah. It does exist, but it's not like, it doesn't exist in everyone. Not everyone's breaks during sex for the first time. Or and the first time Friday. sex with anyone is special. Yeah, it yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely should be. And it's like yep. but I feel like virginity is it's wanting to take innocence and that's why listen to this, like men auctioning off virginity. It may not have happened the way that she like he was writing, but it does happen like that. In other parts, yeah. Other parts, and yeah. more so more so it was just like he had the chance to show geisha culture and he like instead I remember this was a super long part in the book. Mm-hmm. He really like talked about this for a bit. like the fact that I can remember that clearly. And I have not read this book since I was like 10. I, I can remember that scene so clearly. And like, I remember him like removing the pad that she bled on with tongs and putting it in like a little jar where he was, he, or a little bag or something where he kept it with all the other virginities he had bought. So that, guy, he, that, that he just made that up in his mind. I mean, I, I, I he like took, I think like, Part I mean, people did said. buy virginities, but I doubt that there was as, as like cynical as a character as that ever. And she said that she did not, because I'll talk about it. In the book, a geisha is also beaten with a hanger and left crippled. I remember that part too. Maneko said that geisha and Michael are never beaten because it's like a really strict rule in their right. society. They are also the livelihood of an okaya. And so they would not be beaten. How did we read this book <laughs> in middle school? I, also I think, don't know. I also think. And it's still praised today, Emily. I know. And I, the other thing I'd like, not, not everyone bleeds during sex for the first time too. So I think that that is also like, it does happen, but like, it doesn't happen every single time. I feel like if you look at like movies and stuff, it's like either one or one, like one or the other ways they're like, they're portraying virginity as this thing that men need to buy. And then it's like, Oh, well they bled and I felt her hymen. So it was a virginity or it's like the the Madonna hork. Yeah, it's either, yeah, or losing your virginity is the most amazing thing ever, and you're, like, having multiple orgasms, and, like, you're breaking. It doesn't add to your, like, personal esteem. No. If you have had sex with 100 people, or if you've had sex with the zero people, it doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with who you are as a person. Like, women, you know, I think that's one thing we're big champions of, is that women should have control of their own sexuality, and their sexuality should not be controlled by and society honestly, no matter how young as long as they are not harming themselves yes if you yeah exactly and if, as long as mm-hmm. you're safe and i think like we really i decided we're gonna have a page like a section on our mm-hmm. website that is always gonna have i think we just keep adding to it always have some sort of resource for oh totally i'm yeah so it, big on that So goldman said that he did not promise her anonymity and he did not understand why she was so mad uh, maybe because he appropriated a culture and retold it falsely. Yeah, Maneko. and I think it's common. Sorry, okay. real quick. I just, yeah, I, it's so common. I think for like white people to go to other cultures and just assume that they're barbaric because they're different, or like you radicalize their women as like this. Like you, you know, you talked about it with even Princess Jasmine and Aladdin, and 
Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. you, yeah. And I think we've seen it so many times. Even we've talked about this, the book that I read that I think had the like biggest effect on me was um, Things Fall Apart by Chinua <gasps> Chebe. Remember we both yeah. read that in high school and it was like, it was so eye-opening because it really told it from a perspective of like how, and we all know, but like seeing it from someone's point of view of how destructive the, you know, white culture has been to other cultures and just how white culture has viewed other cultures and like it's viewed as barbaric, which it's not just because. Or other, othering. Yeah, yeah, othering, like mm-hmm. they're different is not bad. Different is good. If everyone was the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We should right? accept, yep. we should accept other cultures and like, and cherish them. I completely agree. And if we're ever allowed to leave the country, we're literally only allowed to go to Mexico right now in Russia. I want to go to Mexico. Okay. Well, when <laughs> when when we can get on planes safely again, right? Right. Mexico, and hopefully we can go to more places soon. So right. Uh, I, yeah. Right. We digress again. We will. Okay. So, and many more times before this episode's over. So, Mineko, who was correct, thought the book was largely about sex. Goldman said that Mineko lost her virginity to a jaw dropping $850,000, which was a record in. 1970. That's a lot. So she, that's what Arthur okay. Goldman said. Okay. But she said she lost it to a man she cared for while on a trip to Manhattan when she was 21. Aww. Goldman said Me that, so. that, right? Isn't that cute? Goldman yeah. said that Sayuri is based on the geishas he interviewed as a sum and that the world was set in pre war Japan, not post war Japan, which Mineko experienced. Mineko, but like still, it was enough of a comparison that Mineko lost many friends due to the scandal because they thought she violated the tradition of discretion. And then he said, she did not provide me with any inappropriate information. Goldman said, I'm flattered that the book is being treated like an expose, but it's not, it's a novel. No, it's like, if you were to like take one of our lives and you'd be like, be like, oh yeah, this this girl, um, family, spend spend thirty minutes with them, and then try yeah, to, yeah, like family moved to Seattle when she was twenty one, and blah 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 blah, and like all the things of our life, and be like, oh no, but this was actually set in nineteen seventy two, not two thousand eleven, and her name was family, not Emily. So <laughs> it's no, different. That's such a good. Like, I'm so glad you said that because that really puts it into perspective. I love that. Yeah. Well, it's the same yeah. thing we talked about with Matahari, where they were like identifying her as like H it was like H21 or H26 I can't remember but they basically told her life exactly how it was and the French were like oh well that's obviously Matahari and right. the Germans were like what I remember <laughs> when they like leaked Judith Exner's name to the press like that's yeah we haven't well we released she's being released next episode I think okay cool it's okay. I well, don't know but yeah but I was actually well. thinking about that when we were talking about him say you know saying oh it's confidential and then leaking it it's like <sighs> don't trust sign, anyone sign <laughs> confidentiality agreements. Yeah, and if you sign them, make sure that they're not actually divorce papers. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing, yes. Um, So as Kamiko Akita said in her article, Orientalism and the Binary Fact of Fact and Fiction in Memoirs of a Geisha, very aptly named. This was her thesis essay. It was really cool. I have it saved on my computer because it's such an amazing read. Um, I haven't finished it yet because it's like really heavy and I'm not used to reading scientific papers. I'm really not. Yeah, yeah. She said, Golden treated Japanese culture and geisha as an object to be sexualized, eroticized, and romanticized. 
Mm-hmm. And as Maneko said in a New York Times article, this book has brought shame upon my profession. Many geishas worried that the popularity of the book would ruin the industry's reputation because of the scenes of sexual encounters in the books between uh, the book between geishas and the clients. They were worried that Westerners would see them as glorified prostitutes and that the book would shape how the rest of the world thought of them. And they were correct. Honestly, I think the members of a geisha shaped a generation on mm-hmm. how they thought of geishas. And yeah, as Calvin, even me at the beginning, I, I, I thought that they were, yeah, I didn't know that they were. Workers, right? No, because I was just like, I thought that, me too, me too. Mm-hmm. And like, as Calvin Sims said in his Arts Abroad article in the New York Times, many in the geisha community said that they found the novel troubling because it is written so convincingly in the first person that many readers have come to regard it as fact. When Teruko, a geisha, was invited to come speak about her geisha life at Columbia University in 1998, the only questions that were asked of her were regarding members of a geisha. And she said, I'm afraid that when tourists come to Japan and see geishas on the street, they will think we have a price tag. Mm-hmm. And Maneko later wrote her own book called Geisha A Life or Geisha of Gion in the UK. That's what it's called in 2002. Compared to the 4 million copies, the movie deal, all that stuff, it only sold 500,000, even though pretty much Arthur Goldman could not have created Memoirs of a Geisha without Maneko's help. She set out I to I would rather read that book. Oh, no. me too. Me too. And I actually have a couple of book recommendations at the end of this yeah. Uh, podcast. Yeah. She set out to clear up the misconceptions about the geisha customs and life. She also felt that even though there was a lot of drama involved, her experience as a geisha was priceless and irreplaceable. I agree. Contrary to Sayuri, she was given the choice to become a geisha, albeit very young. In her book, sex is limited to just two men in her life, one of whom's Adana. She also wrote that the book... uh, because of the reason she retired 30 years before to reform the geisha system. The geisha system was founded actually to promote the independence and economic self-sufficiency of women, but it does not seem to be moving forward. That's Mm -hmm. a quote from Maneko. She also wanted to dismiss the idea of geisha as subservient, which is how they appear in Memoirs of a Geisha, but rather as strong women of independent mean and emotional success. And I think emotional success was like, that was really unique because I think emotional success is a lot more important than financial. Yeah, Um, One thing that was really cute in a book excerpt from her book, Geisha Alive, that I read is when she left the geisha profession, she did not know how money worked because everything up until that point had been taken care of for her. Oh, yeah. By her okaya and the appropriate people. So like I've only read excerpts, but like I'm dying to read the book and it's on like my buy list from, I I just don't want to buy from Amazon at this time. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and her and Arthur Goldman settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. And then Steven Spielberg like comes in the picture. Uh, I think so. She was suing him for $10 million. I don't know how much she got. If, I think if you just if you settle for an undisclosed amount, it's like a lot of money. I think so. That's usually yeah. what it means, right? Yeah. And so Steven Spielberg produced the film in 2005 and Rob Marshall directed. Before Spielberg came involved with the film, the film was going to be completely filmed in Japan and filmed in Japanese. But uh, of course they became involved. So Japanese critics wondered if the white men could accurately portray the nuanced, complex and traditional world of the geishas. No. Before film, <laughs> the film actresses had to go to a sort of geisha boot camp for six weeks to quickly pick up skills that took real geishas a lifetime to acquire. And were the, were the actresses Japanese? 
Mm-mm. No. The three main characters were not even Japanese, but Chinese. And one was Chinese <laughs> at the time, but then became naturalized to a Singaporean and Chinese Malaysian. One of them was uh, Zhang Zi, who I really adore in uh, Crouching Tiger. Oh, yeah. The movie is really good. And like she's in the Grandmaster. I really adore her as an actress and she is an amazing actress. But, you know. But it was also because like we know she's she'd been in those movies that we all knew. And it was probably like she was like the one. The box office draw. Yeah, right? she was like, well, you know, she was like the one Chinese actress that Americans knew. So like, oh, yeah, she's been a Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's the one right? movie I've seen. And, yeah. you know, she did praise Memoirs of a Geisha because she, she said it allowed us to show the world what kind of actors we are. And she's referring to, like, the Asian community. Like, what kind of characters we can play, not just action, kick-ass parts. I mean, mm-hmm. I understand, but I do believe that the ti- like the title actresses, the starring act- actresses should have been Japanese. I agree. The starring actors were Japanese, and the secondary actors were Japanese. Why couldn't the starring actresses have been Japanese. They should have been too, because like they also would have known more about the geisha geisha culture too. It's like, and it just, it just, yeah. And most of the film was actually shot in California and only a little in Kyoto. And the film actually won three Academy Awards, not for like best picture or best actress or actor in anything, but still won three. Anthropologist Liza costumes or something. Yeah, yeah, best direction stuff like that. Anthropologist Liza Dalby was brought on to advise the film, and she's the one that was accepted into the geisha culture. And she was largely ignored during, even though she was brought on to advise. She believes the film was a wasted opportunity to display geisha accurately. The Chinese government actually canceled the film's release because of Japan's second Sino-Japanese wartime actions in China and mainland Asia after World War II. So they thought it like super problematic that like in China... This is aspect aspect I didn't even know, but like the Chinese actresses were like acting in a Japanese film during World War II and like praising the Japanese soldier inside the film. Yeah, that is very like yeah for them for them. You know, like definitely. Well, I, I yeah. think that it's it's problematic because it honestly it's like again I think that that casting is Orientalism because it's like assuming that Chinese and Japanese women are the same when it's come two right. completely countries and, and like, there's no geisha in, ja- in Chinese culture you know no. yeah no. and like I'm sure there are like amazing traditional figures in Chinese culture that are not found in Japanese cultures you know well yeah. and it's like this this thing that I feel like western culture is adapted where like everybody in Asian culture is like what from one country you know it's like it's like labeling everyone yeah it's just very problematic like, they're just treating the whole each country like a continent yeah yes exactly where there's like tons and tons and even within the countries there's tons and tons of different cultures too groups yes yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. Yeah. totally yep and you know well and that was a trip and i hope this helps erase all memories of memoirs of a geisha and instead we should be reading geisha a life by Bineko iwasake geisha by liza dalby or autobiography of a geisha by sayu masuda to fully appreciate this profession in its entirety. How do geisha exist today? So outnumbered by other pleasure and and entertainment industries, as Liza Dalby said. What differentiates a geisha from a bar hostess, hostess, waitress, dancer, call girl, escort, and other women of the industry, the Mizu Shobai, is her gay or her art. And that's the end. Oh my gosh. Good job. 
right? It was like, oh my gosh, it was like just exhausting for me to like portray, let alone how exhausting it must be for people who have to go through it and how exhausting it is for people in Japan and the geisha to always have these misconceptions about them. Yeah, well, I, I do I feel really like think- a better person for researching this. I yes. do. Good job. I really do feel like um, like members of a geisha kind of shaped because that was like what, you know, our first kind of look into like- I never heard the word geisha before that. Why would I? 10 years old. You know, I literally like, I, yeah, I literally, I know Matt and I've talked about like geishas be like, we know, I, I always thought that they were like sex workers that- had like a lot of skills. I didn't realize that there was like a distinction. Like, mm-hmm. I thank you so much for researching that and bringing that to our You're attention. You, you did really good. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to really quickly cite my sources. Yes. Go ahead. Um, so there is a geisha, a successful novel and a lawsuit by Calvin Sims in the New York times, conflicting memories from believe it or not, people magazine, remaking a memoir interview by Tarma wider from the Phoenix from How Geisha Works, from How Stuff Works, uh, both A Geisha, A Life by Maneko Iwasake, and uh, the Autobiography of a Geisha by Sayu Masuda, anything by Liza Dalby, and Wikipedia. Good job. Thank you. You did great. <laughs> Give yourself a, a clap on the back and a oh. swig of wine. <laughs> oh, I'm just like, I feel like, just, I feel like this is... I just, I'm starting to feel so much smarter just from doing this podcast. A Caribbean works so hard on this. Like she literally texted me at like 10 PM the other night and was like, I'm going to bed for a couple hours and then I'm going to wake up and I'm going to like restart re- on my research. So like, <laughs> yeah, you've been uh-huh. doing, yeah. We also did a lot of like recordings in this week, this one week. Yeah. So yeah, we did. We did four. In, yeah. We did four in two days. So that was, oh. I know. Yeah, so much when you think about it. I know it's a lot. It is a lot, but it's always really fun. Like I always look forward to these. Me too. Me too. I know. So now for our happy harlot, you're going to have to go because my brain is fried. Okay. Um, I was thinking my happy harlot is, uh, so Polar, my dog, got surgery a couple, I don't know, like last in June it's August now that we're recording this but she got surgery and she was jumping over the gate we got for her to like keep her in this like walk-in closet she had to be in bed rest so we got her a kennel and we got her a kennel when we first adopted her she was rescued from the streets in San Bernardino and like rescued into a kill shelter and then taken to Seattle where we adopted her with like a group that rescues dogs from kill shelters. They're called dog on Seattle. If anyone is in Seattle, it's a really, really great organization. There's also a ton of other organizations like that as well. Anyway, if anyone's interested in adoption, like petfinder.com is where we found ours. And I feel like almost all of pet finders, it's an app. And I like, I have it saw my phone because sometimes I just like look at cats and dogs, but <laughs> almost all of them I think are through rescue organizations like that. Like they, they take dogs and cats from kill shelters and bring them to States where they have no kill orders. So like Colorado is one and I know Washington is one too. So a lot of really good work there and we'll post resources on our website too. But anyway, so we got her a kennel when we first had her and she really didn't take to it. And we, we just ended up like not training her on it because we didn't really need it at the time. Like we weren't really going out of town and leaving her in kennels. And anyway, so we just, we just decided not to kennel train her. And so we had to kennel train her pretty much 
we got this kennel because she was jumping and she could re-break her leg if she does that. So I was really nervous about her doing it, but she, we like put her bed in the kennel and we started giving her treats every time. And she, now every time I say, go to your home, I say, go be a home girl. Oh, <laughs> and she runs, so she runs into it and like, I give her some cheese and we went over to my parents and she spent the whole entire time in the kennel, just like laying down and she'll like, she'll even go in there on her own now. And it's just a really big deal. Cause when we first got her, she's like, she does bark sometimes and whine sometimes when she goes in there, but then she just like, mm-hmm. she jumps around and nests and go to, goes to sleep. Uh-huh, but it like turns around three times. Oh, like 17 times. <laughs> she's like the, She's the craziest nester. Like she literally hops. She'll be like when we were camping, we had her like when we were driving around going on trips, we had to take her with us, obviously, because couldn't leave her at the campsite. But she was in the back of the car. I put some pillows back there for her. And she'd just be like jumping around in circles. And everyone was like, what is she doing? I was like, oh, yeah, she's just nesting. It's okay." (laughs) But I don't know. I just I'm really proud of her. She sleeps in and she's slept in there every single night. Usually she sleeps on our bed, but she can't. She's not supposed to jump on and off the bed. And we're going to start just having her sleep in there at night so that she can be trained. But it's just it's a big deal because she was she had such a hard time with when we first got her. And so it's. It's it's my happy pilot because she's doing so, so well. Yeah, yeah, she's your baby. She is my baby. Well, so mine is a little different from the previous Happy Harlots I've done. So um, I have started watching a show that came out when I was young. And I grew up in a very conservative Lestadia Lutheran Christian home. So we didn't have a TV. So I have started watching Moesha on Netflix. Oh, you have? I, you know, I never watched it and I just saw it came out and I really want to watch it. It is the most like cutest female black empowering feminist show for that age group I've ever seen. And I'm just like, I wish I watched this when I was younger and it's funny and it's made me laugh out loud so many times. And I highly recommend it to everyone. I need to watch it. I actually just saw today. Like I was looking on Netflix. I just saw it come up today. It's hilarious. It's really funny and it's really well written. And Brandy is like such like this, like she says that she doesn't want to be a cheerleader. And like it cuts to like her standing in the middle of the hallway with her arm raised and like the silver outfit and saying, I'm a daughter. I'm a woman of the new millennium. (laughs) Like, it's just like so funny. Like I will have to watch it. I've never seen a TV show like it. So highly recommend it. Sounds so good. Did you see the Umbrella Academy came out i never watched the first season you never watched it it's really good i know i need to i was like an emo kid and i was obsessed with gerard way and my chemical romance he's in it he he created it oh my gosh how did i not know this i know and it's it's all the music is amazing you have to watch the first season you and richard would love it convince me yeah it's his comic book it's based on a comic book that he wrote that's so cool i did not know that i know it's really good cool cool yeah anyway okay well (laughs) this is caribbean emily taking back the word harlot one episode at a time be a harlot not a hater Bye. bye Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Our music is by Lloyd Rogers, and our cover art and our editing is by us. If you enjoyed listening, we would be tickled if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always email us at harlotsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We will do our best to respond with something cute, snarky, or boring. We are also on Instagram and Twitter as Harlots of History. We love you all, even the haters. Bye.